0: It's a great privilege for us to have Tim here and Laura, and uh, we so appreciate their ministry. Uh, I will say this for most of you, you need to realize, as Tim kind of hinted at this morning, he knows where all the skeletons are here, Um, and so therefore there are things that he knows about this church and about us that I've asked him not to mention. (laughs) (laughs) okay Um, but to keep it very positive but we had 18 wonderful years together serving here and had a lot of fun you know doing it so it's a real joy to have Tim back here with us thank you brother thank you Pete great to be here actually I think I'm in some of those closets so (laughs) you know truth be told had to be careful right It is wonderful to be here with you, see so many of you, uh, some that I've known since you were in middle school, some I've had the privilege of leading to Christ and others to encourage you along your way. So it's wonderful to be here. It is um, it's humbling actually to serve the Lord. He's so, uh, he brings glory to himself by using broken vessels uh, to do his work. And so it is very humbling to be used by the Lord in another person's life. Of course, course, uh, when we see our brokenness, sometimes we feel as if we're disqualified from serving the Lord. And it's quite possible that finally we are qualified when we see our brokenness and know that our only hope is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives and the lives of those around us. Our scripture reading today is found in the book of Philippians. It's there printed in your bulletin. Maybe some of you have memorized this, but I'll be reading from Philippians 4, and we'll read from verses 10 to 20. And uh, I would like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Um, The reason we do this is because this is God speaking. I know uh, my voice, but this is the word of God, and God's word has authority in our lives. And we're to submit ourselves to God's word and God's word alone. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, you had revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Uh, tonight we're going to weave a garment together. We're going to weave a garment of the principles found in God's word and my own testimony. Because I believe what God does in a disciple's life is he takes us on a journey to convince us how great he is. And along that journey, he takes us places we would never, ever choose to go. We would say, you know what? I am not going there. And God takes us there. And though we grieve and we struggle and sometimes we kick against the Lord's will, we look back and say, Father, though I would have never chosen that path, surely you taught me that you're a great God. And so while we think about Paul and we think about his life, I want us to recognize that God took the apostle Paul on a journey to convince him That God was his only provision. I'll say it right up front. If you don't know how to be content now, you won't be content with more in the future. Just put it on the table. Generous people are people who are content in what God's doing in their life. Rest in the Lord. If you never understand how to say enough, (laughs) you'll never be a generous person. You'll be a person who's always saying, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And then, and then, and then. then. I went to an inner city middle school in St. Louis. It's Maplewood. I was one of the two white kids in my school. It was an all-black school. My father had become ill when we lived in Phoenix. And uh, we moved back to St. Louis and moved in with my mother's sister. Little house. We piled in there. And uh, we went on welfare. We were on welfare for about six months. And we ate... Cans of peanut butter and cans of what was labeled as cheese. Great butter, some potatoes, powdered eggs. We did that for about six months until my father got back up on his feet. I actually think that was the design of welfare originally. to help somebody (laughs) when they're down so they can get back up on their feet. We have a different version of that now. So I went to an all-black school, and they wouldn't let me play at recess, wouldn't speak to me during class. I was the token white in our class. And so it was hard, because I Those of you who know me know, I've really never met a stranger. I just love people and hear their stories. And I would just shut out. So I I was standing uh, against the chain link fence. And we had a big blacktop where we would play sports at lunch. And I just stood there and watched the guys play football. And day after day, just watched them thinking, man, I really wish I could, I could play. That would be so much fun. And uh, one day the quarterback overthrew the receiver and the ball came to my feet. And for some reason, God's always, he just gave me a strong arm and my uncle taught me how to throw a spiral. So I picked the person farthest away from me and I just gunned a perfect spiral straight to him. And the quarterback, Charles Tams had a big decision to make. Charles was either going to ignore me or he was was going to get me involved in the game. And God used Charles Tams at that moment in my life to put me into a place of blessing. And Charles yelled across the field, White boy! (laughs) They didn't know my name white boy, get in here. So I ran over there about as fast as I could. And he said, you're the quarterback now. And he kicked one of the receivers off the field. And he said, I'll be a receiver. That was a huge sacrifice Charles made. And I'll never forget Charles for that. I went on and Graduated from Maplewood, moved back to Phoenix, went to high school, Trevor Brown High School, and I ended up at Wheaton College, a little school outside of Chicago. I played football and baseball there. and When I graduated from Wheaton, I was offered a contract to play third base for the New York Mets, at least in some version of their uh, farm team, I'm sure. And after the first year, uh, I decided not to do that, by the way, I went into ministry in Chicago and worked with Youth for Christ. And I took a trip, I drove from Chicago back down to St. Louis, and I found Coach Johnson, the man who coached us, the man who became a mentor to me in the black community, was Coach Johnson, because not only did they let me play quarterback on the football team, I ended up being the pitcher on the baseball team. And Coach Johnson coached that baseball team. Every summer day after we had a game, he would take us into his dilapidated house and we would go down in the basement. And somehow he had scrounged up enough money to serve us a red cream soda. And so I went back to say thank you. I was afraid to get out of my car That part of St. Louis is very dangerous. I parked my car and I went to the door and I knocked and I didn't think anyone was going to come to the door. But uh, after a little while, uh, a little black man missing most of his teeth came limping to the door and he looked through the door and he pulled the door open a little bit and he kind of squinted into the sunlight and he said, Timmy? (laughs) I said, yes, sir, it's Timmy. And he opened his door and we hugged. I've never hugged a black man in his box of shorts before, but <laughs> it was a sweet hug. And we sat down on his broken down furniture and I took time to tell him that I played baseball and that I owed him a debt for coaching me and helping me, and for giving me red cream sodas and teaching us, and we cried together, and I shared the gospel with him that I had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we had a sweet, sweet time together. The Apostle Paul wrote the Philippians as a thank you letter. They were his first gospel partners. He wrote this letter to say to them, look, y'all mean everything to me. I started my ministry and the Holy Spirit took me to Philippi. And uh, those of you who know the scripture well know that that took place in Acts chapter 16. And this is part of Paul's journey of developing confidence in God. Remember, God delivers when we need him, and he gives us confidence. Paul's first confidence came in Acts 9 when he was converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was converted in a dramatic way, and he came to faith in God, and he went from being a persecutor of the church to being one who's trying to support the church. And here in Acts chapter 16, we have his Macedonian call, God's call gives us confidence. Verse 6, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas and... A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they set sail, they made direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. That's where Paul's relationship with the Philippians started. Paul went to Philippi, he didn't find a synagogue. He needed to have 12 Jewish men in order to form a synagogue in the first century. And apparently in Philippi, they didn't have a synagogue, they didn't have enough men. And so he went to the river and he met a woman named Lydia. He went to the river because the river is kind of like uh, the mall, right? Uh, It's where you go to meet people and people are unloading their goods off of the ship and you're able to barter and trade. A lot of people are there. And so Paul went down there and he started his ministry in Philippi. And now he's writing them this letter to, to thank them for their partnership. You see, Paul was confident because of his conversion. Paul was also confident because of his call. The apostle Paul goes on in Philippians in chapter one and in verse six, he says, being convinced of this. If you're a note taker or you still circle in your Bible or you can highlight in your electronic device, being confident of this is the key phrase, in my opinion, in Paul's life. He was confident that God would provide for him. When you're confident that God will provide for you, I would liken it to having a credit card with no limit. You have this sense of, yeah, you know what? Paris is gorgeous in April. Let's go to Paris. Why would we not do that? And in fact, let's not just go to Paris. Let's, right. And you begin to live your life with this confidence that uh, you can pay for anything you need. And basically, you can do anything you want to do. Now, the difficulty in this is transferring that trust from a large bank account to an invisible God. Paul was converted. He was called. And through the course of his life, he became convinced of what? Being convinced of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ. You see, he became fearless in his sanctification and in his salvation. He was convinced. He was confident. He was confident in God. One of the biggest problems I've had in my life is too much self-confidence. I've learned over the years that self-confidence is spiritual suicide because you don't think you need the Holy Spirit. I'll never forget a wealthy businessman went into Charles Stanley's office in Atlanta. He said, Pastor Stanley, I just don't pray enough. And Pastor Stanley said, that's because you believe you don't need God. So I don't know your prayer life but I'll tell you, one thing I've learned personally, that is if you don't have much of a prayer life, it's because you have too much self-confidence. You just don't need God. So just keep going. He'll get your attention. He's faithful. I remember one time I couldn't quite prove that one of my kids had lied to me and I wanted to prove it to him. I just had a real peace. You know, if they'd lied once, they'll lie again. I don't need to worry about it. It'll come around. Brothers and sisters, Paul, who was a tremendously gifted person, probably had the equivalent of a couple doctorates by the age of 21. Brilliant, brilliant person. He needed to learn to transfer his trust from his in himself to the Lord, confident of this, he who began a good work. Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute. God started this work in my life. He'll carry it on to completion. He'll sanctify me until the day of Christ, until the day Christ returns. His confidence was in God. It's really the only way you'll do effective ministry. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, You can't do anything. Hearing Robbie and Claire and Pipes sing a little bit uh, there from uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's the confidence we need to have if we're going to follow the Lord. It's the confidence we need, it's in him. Many of you know that my two older brothers were drug addicts. uh, My little sister's an alcoholic. My older brother, Mike, spent the majority of his adult life in prison. I don't know where he is right now. When dad died a few years ago, I was in Africa working in the slums of Nairobi, found out that dad had died, and uh, they cremated him and waited until I returned so I could go do his funeral. I couldn't find my brother, Mike. He was in prison the majority of his adult life, and then when he got out of prison, he became a ward of the state of Missouri, and he lived in kind of like a run-down Motel 6 where they gave him meals, and that was the last I had heard of him. I would visited him there a couple times. I couldn't find him to tell him Dad had died. So I I learned that if you want to go forward in life you're going to have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I didn't want to be like my brothers. I didn't want to be like my sister. So I worked really hard in school and I had some God-given athletic ability. And so my biggest struggle was formed in my childhood where I realized I needed to have confidence in myself and my abilities. And in doing so, uh, by the time I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I was fairly well set on living a life that was based on my own strengths. And I, I was not a very trusting person. The people I had trusted in my life had turned out to be untrustworthy. So I considered it foolish to put my trust in other people. But for some reason, I put my trust in myself. It's irrational, but I did. And I did well in school and in sports. And God provided for me. He provided for me. I went to school on a football scholarship. I I wouldn't have gone to school if a coach hadn't recruited me to go to school. And on October 17th, 1975, my freshman year in college, some guys from Campus Crusade for Christ came into our football team and they presented the gospel. They said that God loved me. And they said I was separated from God because of my sin. And they said the Lord Jesus Christ came and took my sin on himself on the cross and gave me his righteousness. And I sat there thinking this is the best deal I've ever heard in my life. And out of all the football players, this was in Phoenix, I professed faith in Christ. And the man who led me to Christ, Jeff Wilson, called me up that night and he said, do you know what you did today? You know, you said that you asked Christ into your heart. And I said, no. I, I, I get the, the sinful part because I'm a I'm pretty gifted sinner, but I've never heard Jesus. I've never heard anything about Jesus. And when you told me he died to take my sins away, I, I'm dumbfounded. I, I, I must know him. And Jeff has been discipling me since 1975. Long-term discipleship relationship. And God's used Jeff in my life to strengthen me and to encourage me. And that's what the Apostle Paul, that's how he grew in his faith. You see, the Apostle Paul planted the churches, but then the churches were used to strengthen Paul. I don't know if you know much about Miranda Lambert. She apparently grew up not far from here, where some of us like to fish in East Texas but she, she wrote and performed a song called The House That Built Me. It's a beautiful song. Well, I would say to you, the house built Paul. The church built Paul. And I would submit to you, the church has built me, for better or for worse. After I came to faith in Christ, I ended up going to Wheaton College. I got involved at Wheaton College Church, and Kent Hughes started to mentor me We're still friends to this day. And then John Henderson took me under his wing in Youth for Christ. So these are men of the church. So it was the church, but it was individuals within the church. Then I went to Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church and John Wood took me under his wing and helped me understand winsome, loving, Reformed theology, not how many Arminians can you put in a headlock and crush their nose? Some of you enjoyed that. Others are like, what's an Arminian? Like, what's that cost? And then through some of you in this room, uh, I just love and respect you so much. We were called here to Park City's Presbyterian Church. And so many of you uh, have mentored me and loved me. And we've gone through horrible things together on your side and on my side. And uh, nobody has been used more in my life than my dear friend Tommy Bain. It's oh, he just, loves me so much and God's used him to convince me that God loves me and when I went through my divorce in this church, so many of you were used in my life to say, hey, we're, we're your brothers, we're your sisters, we love you, we're gonna go through this together. And I'm working on a book and at first, when you hear the title, you're gonna get mad at me, but be patient. The title is, I love Jesus, I just can't stand his wife. (laughs) Of course, his wife is the church. (laughs) But what I'm really trying to say is, is that the church is filled with sinners and the church is pastored by sinners. And so while we can drive one another crazy, we learn the gospel together. And to love Jesus means to love his church. You can't love Jesus and, and not love the church. The apostle John says that it's just not possible to say I love Jesus and to hate my brother. So I've been on a journey and the apostle Paul was on this journey The Apostle Paul is gaining confidence in the work of the Lord. The Apostle Paul in verse 9 says this prayer. He says, I pray that your love would abound still more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve that which is best. So you may have the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. So Paul's prayer, I pray that you, your love would abound still more and more, comma, in knowledge and all discernment. Presbyterians, our love should exceed our knowledge. I know uh, my friend, Julian Russell sometimes gives us a little insight into the black church. In the black church, when you're, you're rolling along fairly well and you're preaching, you hear things like, amen, hallelujah, when you make a strong point. In the Presbyterian church, more people just take notes. Every once in a while, you'll see somebody grimacing and you don't know if it's a a bad enchilada or a movement of the spirit. (laughs) So the apostle Paul is gaining this strength. He's finding his contentment. He's finding that in his conversion and in his call and in the love of Christ, he realizes that he'll never fully comprehend the love of Christ. He he wants to fully comprehend the love of Christ. In Ephesians, he says, <laughs> you know, he prays that we would comprehend the, the love of Christ, which we'll never fully understand. Because the, the love of Christ is, is is too much for us to fully understand. But God continued to provide for the Apostle Paul through the church and through individuals. And that brings us to chapter four. Where Paul has written this thank you note and he's saying to his friends thank you for taking care of me. Uh, after I came to faith in Christ in 1975, Jeff paid my way to go to a winter conference with Campus Crusade for Christ in Santa San Bernardino. And so we went to the conference and the first Christian I ever heard speak was Bill Bright. The second person was Louis Palau. That's how I cut my teeth on the Christian faith. And uh, after one of the meetings, they put us in little circles. And I mean, hey, I, I I've just fallen off. You know, I, I'm brand new to this Christian stuff. I still have a little bit of a foul mouth, uh, and uh, so I'm in this little circle. And the leader, I'm sure this sweet guy was trying to be helpful, but he's like, let's just go around the circle and everybody share their name and their favorite Bible verse. Like, man, I got the name thing, but <laughs> I and mean, I got nothing on this Bible verse. So I lean over to the guy next to me and I said, hey, man, I, I'm just in a... In, Pardon my language, but I'm just quoting myself, unfortunately. I said, man, I'm I'm in a hell of a fix here. Um, You got a Bible verse for me? (laughs) Fortunately, they were going around that way. And as my granddaughter says, I have a good rememberer. And so this guy says, yeah, Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I'm like, one more time. He's like, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I'm like, money, where is that? He's like, Philippians. I'm like, what's a Philippian? So I probably quoted Filipino 419, but I nailed it. And that's my life verse. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And the Lord has never let me down. The Lord has been very faithful. And what I wanna encourage you with from the word of God and from my life is to don't be afraid. In 1991, some of you took a risk and you you put your faith in God and you voted with your feet and your pocketbook and your convictions and the Lord birthed Park City's Presbyterian Church. And God's faithful. He's gonna take care of our church. And I wanna challenge us Please, please continue to obey God. Let me give you a bit of an illustration. God gives us information on a need to know basis. And if he tells us to head over to the corner of Oak Lawn here and we don't go, then there's no need for him to give us more information because more than likely God has somebody waiting over there at the corner of Oak Lawn for us. And so if we don't obey and go, there's no need for him to give us the next amount of information. Looking out and see some of our old youth group here. Uh, I mean, we used to do scavenger hunts. I mean, this is before nine 11 when you could just have so much fun at the airport. I mean, we would load up 10 Suburbans on a Sunday night and I'd give everybody a clue and look out DFW. Here comes Park City's Press Youth Group. And we could ride the buses, the trams. We could attack the people in the food stalls. But if you didn't solve the first clue, you never got the second clue, right? If you didn't go to Terminal... D or whatever it was back then, you didn't meet the staff person who was dressed up like Santa Claus who gave you the second clue. Brothers and sisters, the American church is waiting for more information about God. And he's saying, obey me and I'll tell you the next step because you have no need of the next step. Because you're not doing what I'm telling you to do now. I have the privilege of traveling the world. And the place where spirit is at work, those are the places where people have heard God say, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and go make disciples. What did I just do? I combined the great commandment with the great commission. If you're not actively involved in the great commandment and the great commission, I would submit to you, not only will you not hear from God, you probably don't really have much interest in hearing from God. I know that's a strong thing to say to somebody on a Sunday night, but I want us to think about that, because God calls us to a life of obedience based on our confidence that he will provide for us. Some of you know the story, my little brother Paul David was shot and killed on Christmas Day 1995 by a police officer in St. Louis, not far from that school. He He was a crack cocaine addict. And I don't know what happened. This is before the days when they had cameras on police officers. Obviously, the police officers shot and killed my little brother, so there there were no witnesses. But I remember um, I was here in this church at that time, and I drove up to St. Louis to do the funeral. And I walked in, and I had to see my little brother's body because I was in denial, and There's Paul David's body. And I had him open the casket and I peeled back his shirt. He was wearing Walmart clothes. One of my brothers had scraped together all the money he had and had gone to Walmart and spent about $40 on a pair of jeans and a button down shirt. That's what Paul David was wearing. So I unbuttoned his shirt and sure enough, there were the gauze and I took off the gauze and I saw that little red dot in the middle of his chest that I knew knew to be the entrance wound and I knew the exit wound was probably the size of a coffee mug and I just fell apart. I just begged God to heal him, bring him back to life. God didn't, at least he didn't bring him back to life here on earth. I didn't know if Paul knew the Lord, so I went out to greet everybody, and I was just saying, Father, I'm here. I'm going to do this funeral. I'm going to tell the truth. I don't know if Paul knew the Lord. Oh, oh, God help me. So I was greeting people. They looked like drug addicts and homeless people, mainly because they were drug addicts and homeless people. And so I said, hey, I'm Pastor Tim. I'm Paul's brother. I'm here to do the funeral." And I met this chiseled black man. he was about six, five, handsome, just ripped. I said, "Hey, I'm Pastor Tim, I'm Paul's brother. I'm here to do the funeral. How did you know Paul?" He said, "We were in jail together. I said, oh man i'm I'm sorry." He goes, "I'm not." I said, "Why? Why do you say that? The whole time I'm praying, God, you've got to tell me if Paul knew the Lord or not because I I just can't get up and do smoke and mirrors. I mean, I have to preach the gospel, tell the truth. Please, God, please, God, I'm here obeying you and you've really got to help me. And that black man took my hand and he started to rearrange my knuckles as he just squeezed my hand. And he said, let me tell you something, Pastor Tinsley. Paul David led me to Christ in jail. And I want you to know that God came to save messed up people. And I said, you've given me what I'm needed. I knew Paul had somehow as a drug addict come to faith in Christ. And I also knew that I needed to change the course of my ministry. That I needed to work realizing that the gospel can save anyone, messed up people. And it's been very freeing because I'm confident that through the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ, he can save anyone. Because it's not about that person, it's about the Lord. It's God who saves us. And he saves us so graciously and so kindly. It's rich, it's beautiful. I'll close with a story about a Medal of Honor winner In Chattanooga, Tennessee, his name is Charles Coolidge. Charles Coolidge, in 1944, worked his way up through France, liberating the people of France. And on his way through France, he was a sergeant, infantry, machine gunner. He's become a friend of mine in Chattanooga. He said, you know, Pastor, when we would... Go through and we would free these people. We would give the children candy, give them candy bars and gum. And I said, Well, Sergeant Coolidge, have you ever been back to France? He said, We did. My son took me back in 1986, about 40 years after the war. I said, What was that like? He said, We rented a car, we piled in there said, we're driving through France. I kept telling my son, no, we hiked over there. Get get the car over there. It's like, dad, it's a rental car. I can't be getting that field. That's where we were. So he said, we were bumping through the fields and we saw a farmhouse. And I said, we better go meet that guy so that we don't get in trouble driving through his land. So they went up to the door and they explained what they were doing. And this Frenchman jumped in the car. He's about 50 years old. They drove all around. He insisted on showing them everywhere the troops had traveled. And then they finished their little tour. He insisted that Sergeant Coolidge get out of the car so he could hug him. Sergeant Coolidge struggled. He got out of the car. This Frenchman hugged him and was weeping, kissing him on the cheeks. And this Frenchman said, not only did you free me, I was one of the little boys who received the candy. Brothers and sisters, Christ not only frees us from our sin, he blesses us. I would submit to you, he provides for us so that we can provide for others. He blessed Abram. So Abram could be a blessing to others. I'm going to talk more about this tomorrow night on how we set our hope on our generous God. Because so far, I've given you information from God's word about God's faithfulness. He's generous. He's generous in creation, he's generous in redemption, he's generous in provision. And I've tried to weave together some of the stories of my life that have convinced me to serve God fearlessly. And that's one of the reasons Lara and I have resigned our position at First Presbyterian Church of Chattanooga. It's a wonderful church, it's a great place to serve. A lot of wonderful things going on, has a bright future, but God has called us to serve in the inner city, in Chattanooga in particular, but throughout strategic cities in the United States. And he's called us to work in strategic global cities, equipping the pastors and the church planters, encouraging them, walking with them. Y'all may not know this, and I know that this church has an extensive world missions ministry, but quite often, we'll go to a place like Hamburg, Germany. And we'll see three or 400 people under the age of 40 worshiping Jesus. They're so excited. They're on fire for Christ. The other churches in the city are dead, but the young people, they're alive. And they're meeting in a warehouse or in a theater. And then after everyone goes home, and it's just Lara and I and the pastor and his wife the story usually goes like this. Hey, we're really good at evangelism, but we don't have a clue what to do next. This has been great. It's been a wonderful ride, but could you please help us? We've been giving all of our time to the church, and now our marriage is about to fold up. It's almost over. And the church, we're just not sure what to do next. We don't know how to develop leaders. We don't know how to develop a strategy. What what do we do next? And so God in his kindness has called Laura and I to do this with a local ministry here in Dallas and Plano, uh, East-West Ministries. So we're going to partner with East-West Ministries, work together. We're very excited. It's a step of faith for us. I'm 61, still feel fairly energetic and healthy and looking forward to serving the Lord and I'm confident that he'll provide for us and I'm confident that he'll provide through us what the church needs, encouragement, counsel, hope. Hope in the Lord, he's a generous God, he's a good God. Please never forget And I know I've rebuked us a little bit tonight when I said self-confidence is spiritual suicide. But I will affirm, brothers and sisters in Christ, for the large part, the American church is so self-confident, it doesn't really, we don't really pursue the spirit. I'm gonna address that with the men on Tuesday mornings very specifically. But I don't want this rebuke to be, uh, obviously, those of you who know me well, I'm not in the work of beating the sheep. Uh, I love you. We're in this together. We need each other. But please know, if your prayer life is suffering, It's because you really don't think you need God. And if you're not hearing the word of the Lord with a a heart that is hungry, longing to know, it could be that you're not obeying God in what he has already commanded you to do. So may God in his kindness work in our hearts that we would obey him and that once again We would need him desperately. And oh, how he will provide. How he has provided for me. I can't begin hardly to describe this evening. But he's a great God. He's a good God. He's everything to us. He's our life. Let's pray together. Father, we think of the life of the Apostle Paul. And and Lord, as we think through the Bible, quite often we identify ourselves with the heroes of the Bible. We think of wonderful people in the Bible, and it seems like every Bible story I read, Lord, somehow I feel like it's, uh, I'm a lot like Jesus. It's kind of embarrassing, because Lord, really, I'm more like the, the Pharisee. More like the judgmental person. More like uh, Peter, who sometimes speaks without his mind being fully engaged. So, Father, we come before you. We thank you that you have chosen broken vessels through which to uh, manifest your grace. Thank you for your generous provision of grace, limitless no budget, oh God, may we believe your truths, may we obey you, and then may we hear from you again with a fresh spirit, oh God, the older we get, the more faith looks like courage, may we be courageous, most of all in our love for you, and for our neighbor as we make disciples. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said together, Amen.